Hi, writers. This is Jim Thayer. I'm the author of 14 novels published by Simon & Schuster, St. Martin's Press, and others. And my book on writing, The Essential Guide to Writing a Novel, is out now in the second edition and is available at Amazon. Let's talk for a bit about theme, a theme in our novel. Herman Melville said, To produce a mighty book, you must produce a mighty theme. But not everyone agrees. Vladimir Nabokov said, quote, Style and structure are the essence of a book. Great ideas are hogwash. A theme is a message the author is trying to convey, usually about a weighty subject such as the meaning of life. A theme is a, a basic and universal idea, an implication of what the reader should believe about a serious subject. Note that the plot and subject matter of a novel are not the themes. Rather, the theme can usually be stated succinctly, money does not buy happiness, or we should look beneath a person's exterior, or nature's destruction is random and impersonal. Uh, One of the themes of Joseph Conrad's Lord Jim is that betrayal has terrible consequences. Uh, Raymond Chandler's The Big Sleep, the theme might be money corrupts. Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird, uh, children should be taught moral lessons. F. Scott Fitzgerald's theme in The Great Gatsby might be Thirst for Money Corrupts American Ideals. Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, the theme could be put as The Relentless Pursuit of Knowledge is Dangerous. In Lord of the Flies, William Golding's themes are uh, that uh, two competing instincts, obedience and anarchy, struggle within all of us. In Huckleberry Finn, Mark Twain's theme might be said to be, we can grow and be reborn. Popular fiction often has themes. Jeff Selesky says that Dean Kuntz's writings have always celebrated the resilience of humanity in the face of terrifying adversity. Donald Westlake has said that he writes about bewilderment. It's been pointed out that Dr. Seuss's Green Eggs and Hams, the theme is not everyone wants to eat green eggs and ham no matter the location. Daniel Steele has said, I hope that underlying, the underlying message of my books is hope. I want to show people that they're not alone, that other people go through the same things and survive. That's Daniel Steele. I've never begun a novel with the intent to convey a theme, and seldom have I ended the writing of one believing I've made a thematic statement. Uh, many writers craft their novels in the same way. Ayn Rand wrote in the 1968 introduction to the 25th anniversary of the Fountainhead, quote, was the Fountainhead written for the purpose of presenting my philosophy? Let me stress this. My purpose is not the philosophical enlightenment of my readers. My purpose, first and foremost, 
And the prime mover is the portrayal of Howard Rourke as an end in himself. I write and read for the sake of the story. My basic test for any story is, would I want to meet these characters and observe these events in real life? Is this story and experience worth living through for its own sake? Is the pleasure of contemplating these characters an end in itself? That's Ayn Rand saying she doesn't search for a theme in her novels. Her readers have sure found themes, but she claims not to have set out to offer a theme. And apparently J.R.R. Tolkien did not begin The Lord of the Rings with a theme in mind. His biographer, Tom Shippey, says, The drafts of Lord of the Rings are almost dismaying to enthusiasts, for one of the things they reveal is that the neat thematic patterns recognized by so many critics, myself included, seem always to have been afterthoughts. When he started writing, Tolkien had literally no idea at all where he was going. That's Tolkien's biographer, Tom Shippey. I don't give much thought to theme in the novels I write. Perhaps I should. If you want to promote a theme in your novel, use caution, as it's easy to mount a high horse and readers don't like looking up. Readers of popular fiction, of commercial novels, and even of literary novels don't want a lecture. But readers do appreciate and expect a satisfying moral outlook in the protagonist. Almost all fictional protagonists are, at least at the end of the story, optimistic regarding the future because they have done the right thing. Their worldview is conventional and rather square. So, irrespective of whether the novelist has given it any thought, most novels have as a theme good things flow from doing right. Here's a question of little significance. Does being a writer grant us license to be weird? There have been some weird writers in the past, especially regarding uh, their writing habits. Uh, 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 Balzac drank 50 cups of coffee a day. That's 50 a day. John Steinbeck, when he wrote at his desk, always had two dozen perfectly sharp pencils there. Charles Dickens slept, always slept with his head pointing north. Dan Brown hangs upside down using gravity boots. He says it gives him inspiration. But do we as writers have to be weird? Do we owe oh, the literature profession a, a little bit of oddity in our personalities I'm not sure I like to think I'm not weird my cat Jack has enough weirdness for both of us and some legendary writers were plainly not weird Humphrey Carpenter uh, his biography of J.R.R. Tolkien says and after this you might say nothing else really happened. This was Tolkien's election to 
the Bosworth Chair of Anglo-Saxon at Oxford University in 1925 when he was 33. The exciting events of Tolkien's life, those things uh, such as scandals or strange accusations or political involvement or uh, relationships with other writers, didn't happen. There was nothing after age 33 His biographer, Humphrey Carpenter, says, for a poor biographer to get his teeth into. Here's another question. Can presidents of the United States be good writers? Some can. Here is David McCullough, the biographer of John Adams, on President Adams. Soon Adams was filling pages with observations like those of his responses to nature, to, quote, soft vernal showers, end quote, atmosphere full of, quote, ravishing fragrance, air soft and yielding. David McCullough concludes, quote, in another time, under different circumstances, Adams, Adams might have been a great novelist. And here's the last question. How can King Arthur make you a great writer? Sir Thomas Mallory wrote La Morte d'Arthur, the death of Arthur in the 1460s, and it was published in 1485. It's the tale of King Arthur, Guinevere, Lancelot, and the Knights of the Round Table. Much of it may have been written when Mallory was in prison for burglary and sheep stealing and an attempted ambush of the Duke of Buckingham. John Steinbeck said regarding the death of Arthur, quote, a passionate love for the English language opened to me from this one book. That's John Steinbeck. So the answer is yes, King Arthur can make us a great can make us great writers. I want to return only briefly to a topic we've touched upon, and that involves the early part of your novel. And it's a key to the success of our stories. E. M. Forster said that a story, quote, can only have one merit, that of making the audience want to know what happens next. And conversely, it can only have one fault, that of making the audience not want to know what happens next. That's E.M. Forster. And Kirk Vonnegut says, quote, A story has to be a good date, because the reader can stop at any time. Conflict and the resolution of the conflict are the only way to make the reader want to know what happens next. This is a, a difficult lesson for a lot of novelists, including uh, particularly new novelists. Conflict is the essence of a novel. The writer Richard Bausch says, fiction is all about trouble. The more the better. What's better than conflict? More conflict, more trouble more roadblocks and dangers. Lawrence Block, the novelist, says, pile on the miseries. And he points out that the catchphrase is stakes. Raise the stakes. Up the ante. 
Right now I'm reading Ryder Haggard's King Solomon's Mines, a novel about a journey into deepest Africa. Uh, King Solomon's Mines was the principal inspiration for Indiana Jones. How long into the Indiana Jones movies does the viewer need to wait for something dramatic to happen, usually before the credits are over? And I'm not talking necessarily about poisoned arrows and, and tiger traps. Risk and drama and tension and surprise, the conflict can be found in romances and in cozy detective novels and uh, in any successful fiction. My, my point is this. Cut to the chase. We should cut to the chase in our stories. Give the readers what they want right away, which is big, dramatic story involving conflict and set out the conflict early. Avoid long setups. Get the story rolling with conflict in the first couple of pages. We talked about point of view in an earlier episode. Here is uh, an extension of that uh, discussion, and it involves multiple simultaneous points of view. You'll recall that the, the technique is to keep the point of view with one character in a scene. Everything that is seen and observed and heard and felt and thought is by that one character. You don't want to leap from one character to another in a scene because it, it gives the story a, a dizzying effect. We can't do it in real life. We can't jump into another person's mind. And when that happens in fiction, the story becomes less believable. We should particularly and also avoid multiple simultaneous points of view. Here's an example. The audience wondered why the lights went out. In that sentence, the reader suddenly in the entire audience's minds. It's a multiple simultaneous point of view. Same with Jennifer and Tom were cold. As written, the reader's visiting both of their minds at once. Here's another example. Tracy and her mom laughed at the clown, having thought there was water in the bucket, not confetti. Well, saying having thought refers to, in this sentence to both Tracy and her mom. We're, the reader is inside both of their brains. As you know, most modern novels have a point-of-view character. That's the person, usually the main character in the novel, or if the main character isn't in that particular scene, the main character in the scene. The point-of-view character simply means the character through which the reader is experiencing the novel. We want our stories to seem natural so that the reader can more readily believe the story as it goes along. Uh, for example, in your novel and in my novels, a dog doesn't suddenly start to speak. Say, where's my food bowl? The reason it's, it's hard for the reader to accept that a dog would speak like a human, un unless, of course, talking animals are part of the story, such as in Animal Farm or Peter Rabbit. Such a thing, a talking animal, would shatter the reader's belief in the story. A talking dog isn't credible. 
It isn't possible in real life, so we don't have dogs talk in our stories, of course. In the same way, the ability of a reader to visit two minds at the same time lessens the credibility of the story. When the reader's inside two or more characters' minds at the same time, it's a multiple, simultaneous point of view. Such a thing isn't possible in real life. A person can visit only her own mind. And in fiction, the reader usually should visit only one mind, that of the point-of-view character in that scene. When the reader suddenly visits two minds at the same time, the realism of the story abruptly declines. So when we write, their attention focused, the reader's inside several minds. Focusing is a mental activity. There is a plural pronoun, so their attention focus gives a point of view to several people at the same time. It's easy to fix. Their attention may have focused makes it speculative. Such speculation is inside the point of view character's mind. It doesn't switch the point of view to those other people. The same is true with something like they knew. Knowing is, of course, a mental activity. It takes a mind to know something. So the phrase, they knew, indicates the reader is visiting several minds at once, which gives the point of view to those people. This is easy to fix, too, with speculation. They may have known, which makes whatever they knew the point of view character's speculation, keeping the point of view with the point of view character. Or it could be fixed by having the point-of-view character observe the others who knew something that indicates they understand, such as, they nodded. The phrase that I use to keep the point-of-view straight in my own writing is, stay inside the head of one character. This phrase keeps me from jumping from character to character with a point of view, and it keeps me from giving the point of view to two or more characters at the same time. Let's talk about vivid sentence-by-sentence writing, the language. Vivid writing. What does vivid mean? It means, of course, full of life, lively, freshness, uh, strong, distinct, or clearly perceptible meaning, forming distinct and striking mental images. We're not going to talk about uh, anything comprehensive regarding writing specific language techniques. Uh, Our talk right now is designed to make us stronger and more vivid writers. We're going to review not so much the rules of the language, but rather tips for good use of the language and language pratfalls to avoid. What's the point of good writing? Writers differ about their goal. Novelist Anne Lamott has said, quote, the communication is the point rather than the beauty of the sentence. I think beautifully crafted sentences are really overrated. That's Anne Lamott. Rudyard Kipling agreed, Quote, we are only telephone wires. But for other writers, including Henry James, as essayist Joseph Epstein points out, for Henry James, well-crafted sentences are the duty of the writer. 
Epstein says, quote, For Henry James himself, of course, phrasing was the name of the game, if not life itself, then his best method for teasing out its meaning in, small quote, the dim and torturous labyrinths in which we all sit in eternal darkness. Did James go too far with his phrasing? Ambrose Bierce, quote, wondered about the possibility of someone doing an English translation of Henry James. Joseph Epstein continues, A poet achieves greatness if he can write six or seven poems that perfectly click. Click is the precise word. When I read a great poem, Joseph Epstein says, I hear in my mind a clicking sound as of tiles sliding together and fitting exactly, exquisitely, forming a thought hitherto unpredictable yet somehow now inevitable. How many beautiful sentences does a prose writer need to compose before he or she is acknowledged a master? A hundred? Five hundred? A thousand? I may have struck off a dozen or so in my time. And when I have done so, I have always known it. For swish, goal, touchdown, there is no other feeling like it. That's Joseph Epstein. Isn't his enthusiasm about great writing wonderful? He adds then, Joseph Epstein adds, the point of writing is discovery. The writer discovers first for himself by moving words around, bringing out surprising new meanings in them through arranging them in never-before-seen combinations. And if he hits upon the perfect combination, a light goes off, and the world will seem a brighter place to him and his readers. That's Joseph Epstein. Clear communication should be the goal in our writing. The essayist B.R. Myers tossed a stink bomb into the literary establishment when he wrote an essay in the Atlantic Monthly, which was later expanded into a book called A Reader's Manifesto. The Times of London said it was brilliantly written, and the executive, executive editor of Doubleday said uh, it was, quote, sort of smart, but definitely annoying. Here's a couple of sentences from Myers's book. Nothing gives me the feeling of having been born several decades too late, quite like the modern, quote, literary bestseller. Give me a time-tested masterpiece or what critics patronizingly call a fun read, Sister Carrie or just plain Carrie. Give me anything, in fact, as long as it isn't the latest must-read novel complete with a prize jury's seal of approval on the front and a clutch of precious raves on the back. In the bookstores, I'll sometimes sample what all the fuss is about. But one glancing at the affected prose, quote, furious dabs of tulips stuttering, from Annie Prolix's The Shipping News, say, or, quote, in the dark before the day yet was, that's Cormac McCarthy in Blood Meridium, and I'm highlighting it back to the friendly black spines of the Penguin Classics. B.R. Myers continues, Today, any accessible story written in unaffected prose is deemed to be genre fiction, at best an excellent 
read or page turner, but never literature with a capital L. Everything written is self-conscious writerly prose. On the other hand, everything written in self-conscious writerly prose, on the other hand, is literary fiction, not necessarily good literary fiction, mind you, but always worthier of respect and full-page reviews and even a best thriller or romance. That's B.R. Myers, and they are my thoughts, too. We as writers should say it and say it plainly. Words should be windows to our stories, not rickety contrivances designed to show off our supposed literary talents. But as writers, I think we'll go through life finding a lot of bad writing, and I don't mean just in novels. Awful writing exists everywhere, and it's a writer's curse to be aware of it. Here is a warning sign on the front wall of the squash court at Meadow Park at Whistler in British Columbia. It says, Mandatory eyewear protection is required for players 18 and under. (laughs) Mandatory eyewear protection is required. Here's the Auburn University, a wonderful place where I have visited. It's their website. Quote, Access to events will become accessible as events become available. <laughs> Imagine the fun of writing that horrible sentence. Here's a sign on, a, on the road on the way to Hood Canal in Washington State. Trespassing only by written permission. I guess we need permission to trespass. Here's a sign at Arches National Park. What a place. What a wonderful place. It asks visitors not to walk on certain ground. Quote, may cause irreplaceable damage. A writer sensitive to good writing must go through life with her shields up, lest she get hit in the brain hour after hour with bad combinations of words and maybe making us stupider and stupider. Uh, that's it for this episode. Next, next time we are going to talk about some techniques to make our writing simpler and so stronger and clearer. Our goal should be to make our writing a clear window to the story. And that's what we'll talk about next time. And until next time, I hope you have a good couple of days coming up planned. And please... This is Jim Thayer. Keep tapping those keys.